we could have we could have easily broken up this this um, portion of our of the Lord's prayer into into three messages. We could have did a message on um, deliver us, uh, lead us not in temptation. We could have delivered. We could have, we could have uh, had a piece of another message on evil and a third one on the conclusion for thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever but instead we're going to keep all three of those pieces together just the way they're presented in the last lord's day in the heidelberg catechism so let's uh, look at the catechism together there are three questions and answers in the catechism 127 through 129 and uh, i'm going to ask that you help me and i'll read the question and let's read together the answer okay so we'll look at questions 127 through 129 of Lord's Day 52. What does the six request mean? And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil means. By ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own, even for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us. Make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly rest until we finally win a complete victory. What does your conclusion to this prayer mean? For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever means. We have made all these requests of you, because, as our all-powerful King, you not only want to, but are able to give us all that is good. And because your holy name, and not we ourselves, should receive all the praise forever. Last one. What does this little word, Amen, express? Amen means, this is sure feeding. It is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. See, in question 127 of the catechism, the catechism is telling us that when we pray, remember that despite the strong front we carry on a day-to-day basis, we're actually pretty weak and dependent on God when it comes to our ability to follow Him. It's not something we can successfully do on our own. Lust, greed, selfishness, laziness, ego, they're all poised to trip us up from living successfully, following God's lead. Until we are fully in God's presence in heaven, we need God's help or else we'll fall back to our default human nature, which is stained and chained down by sin. Remind yourself of this when you pray. In questions 128 and 129, the Catechism teaches us to remember, just like we did when we started the Lord's Prayer, that God is completely capable. God is completely in charge. God is completely unstoppable. When we pray, God is listening and responds to us. Now, while I can't adequately cover all these elements in a short time, I can summarize them and and look at them as a whole by talking about one overarching principle, living our lives in the kingdom of God. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you hear the term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven come up a lot. It's a key concept in how Jesus presented 
and communicated what a life following God looks like. Jesus lived in a time, in a culture where kings ruled. Kings had territories, areas of reign where the unique set of laws applied. If you were physically in the limits of the king's territory, if you were in the king's kingdom, then you had to submit to the laws, the rule of the king. And so Jesus shows up and communicates this very radical new idea. God's kingdom is here. Mark 1.15, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. See, that was the gospel. That was the good news, that Jesus, God in human flesh, ushered in God's presence. His reign and his rule is now here. God is no longer far off, but through the person of Jesus Christ, his kingdom is accessible. God is knowable. You can enter into it and be a part of what God's doing. You can be in relation with God. This is one of the major themes of Jesus' teaching and ministry, and this is why the Bible tells us when Jesus was crucified that the earth shook and the massive curtain in the Jewish temple that separated the uh, ordinary space from the Holy of Holies was torn in two. God was physically demonstrating that because of the atonement, the sacrifice that Jesus became for us, there is no longer any barrier between us and God. God's kingdom is here, and Jesus ushers that in. That's what we celebrate in Advent. The last few parts of the Lord's Prayer could be summed up this way. God, help us not to resist your kingdom, your reign, and your rule. Keep us from our own values and goals, and help us to immerse ourselves and align ourselves with your kingdom values, your kingdom goals. And so to help us understand this a little bit, I want to look at two stories. Everybody likes a good story, right? Well, everyone likes stories in Jesus' day. In fact, um, Mark 4.11 tells us that Jesus gave the secrets to the kingdom of God through parables, through stories. And so he tells these stories in a row to help us understand our relationship to our Creator. So let's look at Matthew 21, 28 through 46 together. And you may have heard these parables often. Try to experience them as if you're reading them for the first time, because they're actually pretty bold. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work, uh, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered but later changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But then he didn't go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? The, f the first they answered, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. 
Listen to another parable Jesus follows up. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one. They killed another. They stoned a third. Then he sent another, other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, the crowd replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them, and they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This is God's word. If you haven't grown up in the church and you're not familiar with these, these two Bible stories, they may not seem so great to you. In fact, they may seem cryptic and even a bit morbid. The first story, you have one son saying, Forget it, Dad. I'm not going to do what you're asking. But then he later goes on and does it. Then the second son says, No problem. But then he doesn't do it. Then Jesus tells a bunch of religious people in the crowd that prostitutes, that prostitutes and crooked tax collectors are participating in God's kingdom, his reign and his rule ahead of them. Basically, he's saying, you well-adjusted, normal religious folk are falling behind. The crooked tax collectors and prostitutes are getting in on God's work, God's kingdom ahead of you. In the second story, you have another story about a dad that owns a vineyard. And this time he rents it out, but his renters don't want to pay the rent. And they kill and abuse the rent collectors. And then they kill the owner's son. If this is your first time hearing these stories, you're probably thinking... Wow, Jesus told some pretty interesting stories. I imagine Thanksgiving would be pretty interesting around his dinner table. What is Jesus getting at here? Why are these stories so important for our lives that they're in the Bible? Well, let me tell you that these two stories are crucial in understanding how God wants us to relate to him. And therefore, how we need to pray. Let's break down them a little bit. I'm going to ask for your help. Let's start with the first one. It says a man has two sons. So uh, who is the dad in this story? Who does the dad represent in this parable? This is an easy one. God. Great. Okay. How about the two sons? Who do they represent? Okay, I'm going to break that down. It's a little, it's a little advanced answer, Bill. Um, 
They represent people. And if you want to be more specific, two types of people. First, the non-religious who don't look like or act like they're in good standing with God. The second represent people who, at least on the outside, seem like good, reasonable, faithful people who aim to please God. Here's a slightly more difficult question. What does the vineyard represent? Anybody? Yeah, smart person over here. God's kingdom. God's reign and rule in the world. See, Jesus tells about six or seven stories where the vineyard represents God's kingdom. And if you lived in that uh, agricultural um, setting in the Middle East, vineyard was a, just a, a powerful visual of abundance. You know, at the beginning of the season, you have these little scraggly vines, and by harvest time, these vines have produced clusters of grapes, some that will be used as grapes, some that will be uh, fermented and pressed into wine. The vineyard was a symbol of abundance, of good stuff. And Jesus uses this over and over again to talk about God's work in the world. In fact, if, uh, it's part of the reason why Jesus' first miracle is turning 150 gallons of water to some of the best wine the master of the ceremonies ever tasted. The, the occasion of that first miracle, Jesus' first miracle, is a friend of the family's wedding. But Jesus didn't just change water to wine to keep the party going. The miracle is dripping with kingdom of God imagery. Jesus has the servants fill up six large water vessels. They were used in religious purification rites. And so you would get water poured over your hands from these water purification vessels, and you could be clean and enter the banquet. Well, he turns the water from these purification vessels into the best wine, signifying God's kingdom is here in abundance. The fruit of the vineyard is now in abundance, replacing the purification rites of the religious system. That's just a little aside, but the wine, the vineyard, is symbol of God's work, God's life-giving work. Work in the kingdom means doing God's work. And work in the, in the vineyard, sorry, means doing God's work, embodying the values and the principles of God. Not only living life God's way outwardly, but inwardly having God's reign and rule in your heart. The first son represents those who never pretended to be close to God. They never pretended to be about what God was about. They had a firm grasp on, on their spiritual condition. And they didn't pretend that it was rosy. So when the father asks them to go work in the vineyard, they say no. They're openly defiant. But then we find out that somewhere along the way, a change has occurred. And their father's request has now become their quest. And they go from outward disobedience to an inward transformation where they take on the kingdom values, the kingdom work of the father. They tend to the father's business. The second son looks and acts obedient. Outwardly, yes, he is obedient. But inwardly, the kingdom values are not present in his heart. 
people like the second son say the right things. They look the part. It's the people in the crowd, especially the Pharisees and religious leaders, who dress appropriately. They put money in the offering containers at the temple. They even know and honor scripture. In fact, many of them have much of the Old Testament memorized. They look like the closest people to God, the closest followers of God, but inwardly, their values, what they care about and who they care for, do not match God's kingdom values. Ironically, they memorized God's values, but they didn't embody them. They still let their own values and goals rule their lives. And so they never go to work in the vineyard. They miss out on being a part of what God wants to do in and around them in their everyday lives. So that's why Jesus tells them, even crooked tax collectors and prostitutes are getting in on God's business ahead of you. Those experience inward transformation. And that inward transformation should have convicted you. And you should have changed your mind and actions as well, but you didn't. It's a pretty serious parable. And it begs us to ask ourselves, are my values God's values? Are your values God's values? But Jesus just doesn't leave it here. He presses on. He presses the issue further by telling the second parable. Now help me out again. In the second parable, there's another dad and another vineyard. Who are the ones who rent out the vineyard? I saw a couple us. I heard us. Um, yeah, but you know what? We'll give us the benefit of the doubt, okay? Although some of us are us, but some of us may not be us. <laughs> the us in this story are folks who are religious, but don't embody the kingdom values, okay? And just to be frank, there might be some of us in here like that. In fact, if I am completely honest, there are days when I go through the religious motions without connecting and responding to the values in the heart of my Heavenly Father. But anyways, um, so the, the, the second... The, the <clears throat> let me get back on track here. The second... The people are like the second son. People who pretend to be doing God's will and look to be close to God, but inwardly are pretty far from it. Now, you have to be pretty biblically literate to get the next question. Who are the three servants who, are, who come to collect the rent, who are killed, abused, and stoned? The prophets. Very good, very good. Now, the Old Testament prophets, God sent to his people to help them to realign their values. Their values got all out of whack. And to help them realign their values and actions with God's values and actions. But the people didn't listen. In fact, they didn't like them. And they did a number on, of, on many of the prophets. Remember the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah? He, he got the tar beat out of him. And they threw him down into a well and left him there. Why? Because he basically said this. He said, listen guys, God values justice, you don't. God values mercy, you don't. God values compassion on the poor and the foreigner. Love for your neighbor. And you don't. 
You guys value money, greed, power at any cost. You don't care about the marginalized. You don't care about the outcast. And the truth hurt. And so they hurt Jeremiah. Now, how about the son? Who is the son in the second parable? Jesus. It's the one time you can answer Jesus. Be right. In this parable, Jesus does a bit of prophetic foreshadowing. He knows what lies ahead for him. And he does this foreshadowing in a way that the religious leaders really have no clue yet that he's describing him, himself and them. Let's, let's look real quick again at Matthew 21, the last part. Jesus says, Therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. This is after they kill his son. What will he do to, the, to those tenants? Now the crowd shouts back, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They don't realize that they're asking God to bring themselves to a wretched end. And so Jesus goes on to let them know that he is the son and they are the renters who are rebelling against the owner of the vineyard. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Meaning, the very keepers of the faith, the religious leaders themselves are rejecting Jesus. But God has put them as the foundation, the starting point for everything, for life in the kingdom. Then Jesus goes on to say, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit, its grapes, its wine. This is huge. Basically, Jesus is saying, I don't care how much religious perfection you embody. It doesn't matter if you have the whole Old Testament memorized. It doesn't matter how much extra money you give at the temple if those outward signs do not embody an inward transformation. Are your values God's kingdom values? If they're not, you're lost. We will only bear fruit when we have reconciled with the Heavenly Father. Repent, meaning change our minds and our actions. Conform our values to God's values. Jesus makes both those things happen through his sacrifice, through his teaching, through his ministry. His sacrifice connects us to God, extends to us forgiveness and grace, and his ministry and his teaching shows us God's values. And then Jesus says this in closing. He, he closes up the two parables by saying, He who falls on this stone will be broken, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And basically Jesus is saying, Anyone coming to me is going to get tripped up and hurt, either for better or for worse. When we stumble on Jesus, we see both God's grace, God's truth, God's values, but then we also see our brokenness, our weakness, our limitations, our inabilities. When we run into Jesus, we see just how foolish 
The things we value are, like appearances, status, material comfort, moral perfection. We see how all those things just won't carry us. And when we realize this, we realize our brokenness. Then we can receive God's kingdom, God's power, for God's glory. Lead us not into temptation of the values arising from our human nature. Deliver us from ego, envy, selfishness, apathy, jealousy, and hate, and the one who brings on those things. For everything good, everything holy, everything righteous, everything pleasing comes from and is contained in God's kingdom. What are you valuing? What are we valuing? I asked this of my family around the dinner table. I said, all right, if an invisible alien scientist came in from the planet Neptune and uh, with, the, with the task of trying to figure out what we care for, what we value, after living with us for a few days or a few weeks, what would that, that alien write down about us? And we said for my son Sam that he values digital entertainment. He enjoys stimu the stimulation of building giant uh, structures without any instruction. And he values hanging out with his friends. For Ben, the alien would write down, Ben values everything in the natural world. He values being outdoors. He values pets. He, anything living, he values. And he's very curious about anything dead. For Phoebe, we said the alien would write that she values her family her peace, her safety. And she also values creativity and not conforming to her mom's status quo. What do you value? If we had a value meter and waved it up in front of you, what would come up? Sports? Family? Taking good care of my things? The appearances of my yard and my house? Food? That would come up in mind. Friends, rest and relaxation. See, these are all decent things. Here's how you can tell what you value. What do you look forward to doing? What do you muse about when you have a little bit of downtime? What do you spend much of your free time doing? Where do you spend the bulk of your money? If you get $500 as a Christmas gift, what would you do with it? These are pointers at what we value. What do you value? And the second question, what are God's kingdom values? And does God's kingdom values line up at all with our values, with my values, with your values? Jeremiah 9, 24, God says this, let him who boasts boasts about this, that he understands and knows me. And then he lists a bunch of his values. I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth, for in these things I delight. We, we would spend all day here it, talking about what does God value. But I want to just give you three that I summarized from Jesus' teachings. 
I try to pick his top three values. When Jesus came to show us the grace and truth of the Father, he showed us three things. One, that God values community. Jesus spends much of his teaching on getting us to shed our ego and reconcile with one another. To put down our pride, show some humility, and forgive and repair relationships. Take the initiative to make things right. God always operates in community throughout the Bible. I don't know if you noticed that. But we almost always default to individuality. Another, number two, God values sacrificial love. Sacrificial love is love to the point that it hurts a bit. When we love someone who is unlovable, when we love someone who is not like us, when we bend or cater or defer our preferences and styles to someone else's, we show sacrificial love. When we say something or do something that we didn't need to do, that we didn't have to do, it was above and beyond the call of duty. That's sacrificial love. When we're not following sound, worldly advice, but are doing things that are detriment of ourselves because of love, that's sacrificial love. That's the love that God has for us, shown through Jesus Christ. God values community. God values sacrificial love. And one of the other big values that you could see, and there are many more, but I was trying to take the, the top three, is radical generosity. Not giving out of our extra, but sharing what, what is ours. I heard a funny inspirational um, moment on Caleb. And I got to say, I'm, I'm a love-hate Caleb fan. Sometimes I love Caleb, sometimes I hate Caleb. That's the local Christian radio station. Um, other than uh, the Moody's 94.3 around here. And they, the announcer was saying that on a real, a real true story, a, a call-in show where the, call in, the caller would ask a, an expert question and the expert would respond, a woman called in and said, is it okay to eat a turkey that's been in my freezer for 20 years? Yeah, that's what I said, what? And the expert said, you know, it might, be not, it might be a little bit on the uh, chewy, tough side, but it's okay. It's not going to hurt you. And then the lady went on to say, good, I'm going to give it to my kids. <laughs> and then the uh, Caleb announcer began to say, isn't that so much like us? We are so quick to give what we don't need. Give out of our extra, our excess. God doesn't give like that. God gives till it hurts. God loves Radical generosity. That's why Jesus praises the widow who gives her last two cents over a bunch of, over some really wealthy people who chuck in a bunch of money, way more than two cents, but it doesn't have any impact, any effect on them. Acts 2, people sold their possessions and gave to those in need. God values radical generosity. God values sacrificial love. God values community over individuality. Do we value those things? When we think of the last part of the Lord's Prayer, 
Could we pray along these lines? Lord, lead us not towards selfishness, lust, or materialism. God, deliver us from ego individualism at the expense of community. Keep us from storing up stuff and just giving what's extra. Deliver us from keeping to ourselves and not influencing the world around us for your kingdom. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.